I will lead us. I'm not used to this liturgical moment or movement in the church here, moving the mic back and forth, but I'll get the hang of it here. Um, uh, I will lead us in a prayer for illumination before I uh, preach the word this morning. And at the moment, I would like to direct your attention uh, to the word of God as it's found in four passages of Scripture. Three are taken from the book of Leviticus and one from the Gospel of Luke. We begin with Leviticus chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 8. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. While you're finding uh, that text, um, uh, uh, just let me say how glad I am and privileged I am to be able to be in this pulpit this morning and to be able to bring God's word to you. It's a joy to be able to fellowship with you in this way and to worship together with you. I'm also pleased my wife Susan um, uh, is uh, with me in the assembly here this morning. Uh, Susan and I are both privileged to have been involved in academic ministry, and I, while I was teaching at Kuiper College, uh, she taught at Calvin College in the English department for, uh, for, um, for 28 years while well, I taught 18 years at Kuiper. So uh, we we're just really privileged, uh, God's being able to bring us to Western Michigan, uh, and now to be able to be with you here uh, this, this morning. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling uh, or an infection or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair of the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day, and if the diseased area has faded and the disease is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an infection, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the infection spreads in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the infection has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprous disease. And then in that same chapter further down, uh, verses 45 to 46 of chapter 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and he shall cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease As long as he has the disease, he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And then Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. And then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person... The priest shall command him to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. 
And he shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And now I direct your attention to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, and woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves, or be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded to do? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its variety. We thank you for its richness. Uh, We thank you for the way that it gives to us and instructs us in all things that are necessary for life and godliness. And we pray that as we explore uh, Luke 17, this portion of your word this morning, that you would give us, uh, through your spirit, real and genuine understanding of what this text says and how we ought to understand it and how we ought to apply it and embrace it in our lives. Use this time as a great time of great blessing and instruction in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I would like to share with you what I consider to be an extremely important 
but somewhat challenging uh, passage of Scripture. It's not challenging because it's difficult to understand, but it's challenging because it's somewhat and rather counterintuitive. It has to do with the whole matter of increasing our faith and how we are to go about uh, doing so and getting our faith increased. And so this morning's topic, the thing that we want to focus on in Luke 17 this morning, is the subject, what does it mean to have faith increased and how do we go about it? And as we begin to consider this topic, the first partial answer is, and this is where this is uh, counterintuitive, our faith is not increased in the way that we normally increase things. It's a different kind of increment. It's a different kind of expansion. Now I'm going to ask the young people in the congregation, the younger young people, you're all young people, and then there's the older young people, and the very old young people, and then there's the younger young people. But the younger young people, I want you to help me here this morning uh, with this illustration. I'm a connoisseur, a devotee, a lover of fine chocolate malted milkshakes. And I believe I make a pretty good one. Now, to make a good chocolate malt, you need the right ingredients. You need milk, ice cream, perhaps a little cream, some chocolate powder or syrup, a little bit of sugar, a few drops of vanilla extract, and, of course, malt powder, all in the right proportions. You put them in the blender, or you put them in a wand mixer, to be preferred, for reasons that I'm glad to share with anyone who might uh, want to know, and you combine it together in an, until it results in a smooth beverage of frothy, foamy goodness. Now, of course, when I make a chocolate malt, I sample it before I pour it out of the blender and drink it or serve it to others. And if the proportions are not quite correct, it's a simple matter to correct the problem. If the malt needs a little more chocolate flavor, you add some additional chocolate powder or syrup. If it needs a little bit more vanilla flavor, you add another couple drops of vanilla. If it needs a little more malt flavor, you add some additional malt powder. All right, are you all following me? Am I going too fast here? You all you kind of get the, get the feel of it here? Okay. Does everyone understand what I'm trying to say? Okay. Well, it's not difficult to increase the chocolate or malt flavor of a malt. But how do you increase faith? How do you increase faith? You can't increase faith like you do chocolate flavor in a malt because faith is not a substance. Would that it were. Uh, it, it would be nice if we could just take a few uh, vitamin F12 tablets uh, in the morning or mix some faith extract with our orange juice uh, at, at breakfast time in order to increase our faith. But, but it's not simple like that, is it? So how do we do it? How do we increase faith? Well, I think the text before us helps us a great deal to understand how. And the insight comes together as we knit together the instructional section, uh, the parabolic section, that is in parables, Jesus speaks a parable here, and the narrative section 
of Luke uh, chapter uh, 17. And, and it's important that we see the interplay of these, uh, these three sections in this chapter. In the Gospel of Luke, context is king. Context always rules. There's a little helpful hint here in your Bible study uh, in Luke's Gospel. In his introduction, Luke writes to Theophilus that he's seeking to write out an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus. And he most certainly does. This is a very thought-through narration of the life and ministry of Jesus. The result is we need to pay careful attention to how the teaching sections, the parables, and the narratives that describe what's happened, the events that are taking place, inform each other. Because frequently in the Gospel of Luke, they interplay and the one informs the other. And I want you to be be attentive to that as we look at uh, Luke 17 this morning. As our passage opens up, we are comforted to find that the disciples of Jesus are struggling with just the same um, uh, problem that we are this morning. How do you increase faith? We first discover the need for increased faith uh, as reflected in the cry of the disciples uh, in this passage. As the passage opens, Jesus is discussing some of the more difficult things about what it means to be a Christian and the cost of discipleship, particularly the need to freely forgive uh, others who have injured us. Verses 1 through 5. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So pay attention to yourselves, as the ESV puts it, but be on your guard. Look out. Look out. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day, and he turns to you seven times in that same day saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now the disciples find this teaching just a little bit too hot to handle. And they cry out, increase our faith. Now this isn't a terribly unusual response of the disciples whenever they are confronted with the hard, some of the hard teachings of Jesus. When Jesus talks in Matthew 19 about how marriage is meant to be permanent, they respond, well, if that's the situation be a husband, between a husband and wife, it might be better not to marry. If marriage is permanent, well, maybe we shouldn't get married. Okay? Um, uh, Luke, uh, or Matthew 19.10. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus confronts the rich young ruler and comments afterwards that it's easier uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, they're astonished. And they cry out, well, who then can be saved? And now when Jesus tells them that they ought not to be a stumbling block to others and that they ought always to forgive, they cry out, increase our faith. This need for increased faith is also reflected in the reply of Jesus to this this cry, this prayer, dramatic prayer. And Jesus' immediate response is hardly what we would find comforting, and I'm sure they didn't find it comforting. 
If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the smallberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Wow. Wow. How do you respond to that? Have you made much firewood by faith recently? Well, the suggestion is that you must not have faith even the size of a mustard seed, which I'm told is a really tiny, eensy-beensy, teeny uh, little seed. Jesus is rebuking his disciples for their lack of faith. He then goes on to give an additional perplexing reply in the form of a parable, and it's not more, much more comforting either. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will or may eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded to do? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Uh, the, the mysteries of this text keep accumulating. What does that mean? And how does it relate to the increase of faith? Well, my friends, I'm excited to tell you uh, uh, that the narrative verses that follow draw all this together and explain it to us. In Luke, context is king. And the instructional section, the parabolic section, the parable, the narrative all work together in order to us to help us to understand this passage and to understand uh, how it is that faith uh, can be increased. So let's look at this next section, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus responded, Were not ten cleansed? Where? Are the nine? Was no one found to return and give thanks and praise to God except this alien, this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Here Luke introduces um, the narrative of the ten lepers, and he does so as to introduce to us the means of increased faith. And he begins with the request of the ten lepers. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He is presently at the border of Samaria and Galilee, which is a long, long way from Jerusalem. As they approach a small, uh, approach a small village, ten lepers come to Jesus and cry for help. Now, we need to see the significance of all this. These men are lepers under the ban of the ceremonial law. 
And uh, I'm trying to give you some background uh, this morning as we read those three uh, passages from the book uh, of Leviticus. Let me talk a little bit more about that, about the nature of leprosy. Leprosy was symbolic of the pollution of sin. And it included a whole host of skin diseases, not simply what we call leprosy today, but a whole host of of, of skin uh, diseases. Uh, It was a symbol of the pollution of sin. So those who, um, who bore it were not necessarily more sinful than anyone else, but they did serve as an object lesson to the community of the reality of the pollution uh, and sinfulness uh, of, uh, of sin. Those who were lepers were symbolically cut off from the worship and social contract, contact in Israel. They couldn't go to the tabernacle, and later they could not go to the temple. They had to live outside the city uh, or outside the camp uh, back in the days uh, when they were the, the wilderness wanderings and the exodus. They had to remain apart from others. If they were walking down the road and they saw other people coming towards them, uh, they had to, to, to cover their, their, their lips, their mouth, and they had to cry out, Unclean! Unclean! so that those folks wouldn't uh, accidentally uh, meet up with them and be uh, potentially uh, polluted uh, by contact uh, with them. So it was a hard life. It was a hard stewardship. Uh, and, um, and it was done to testify to the nation of Israel about the seriousness of sin, uh, how terrible a thing sin is, and how desperately uh, we need to be uh, delivered from it. It was a symbol of sin. It was a symbol of sin. Now notice in this text that these men recognize their difficulty. They they acknowledge their status. They don't run up to Jesus. They they stand at a distance. They also acknowledge their helplessness. They, They cry out to Jesus for help to have mercy upon them. And please know, don't miss this in the text. Jesus hears them. Jesus always hears the cry for mercy when we come to him. This then leads to, in the narrative, the restoration of the ten. Jesus responds by commanding them, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, why does he do this? The priest couldn't cure, uh, but he could pronounce someone clean after an elaborate ritual. And you, we read that ritual when we read those sections from the book of Leviticus a, a, a moment uh, ago. So he says, go and show yourself to the priests. And so, um, and the priests could declare them clean. But there's a problem, isn't there? Uh, the problem is they're not yet clean. They're not yet healed from their leprosy. Also, to go to Jerusalem is a big request. Jerusalem's a long way off. But Jesus says, go, show yourself to the priests, and they go. They start off down the road uh, to Jerusalem. Now, we need to appreciate this. We need to understand what's going on there and, understand, and, and, and um, to a certain degree admire it. They're still leprous, yet they're still going to the priest. 
Further, a complication, at least one of them is a Samaritan. And Samaritans uh, were not popular in Judea. Samaritans were considered uh, to be um, uh, uh, heretics. They were considered to be member of a kind of an offshoot Jewish cult. Okay, that had bad theology and bad practice. Samaritans were not popular in Judea. They're even less popular in Jerusalem. And they're especially not welcome in the temple. You know, it would be like a Palestinian gorilla showing up at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. That would cause a little bit of a stir, eh? A Samaritan comes into the temple, and that would cause a great deal of stir. But notice, here is faith in action. Jesus says, go, show yourself to the priests, and they go. They go. They believe and act on the word of Jesus. And this provides for us the first lesson on faith found in this chapter. Faith is not some kind of inner strength that we have that enables us to move mountains or trees. Uh, Faith is not some inner intense emotion that we conjure up in order to focus our spiritual energies. Faith is not some leap into a dark unknown Faith is believing and acting upon the word of God. That's what faith is. Faith is believing and acting upon the word of God, which in this case is the word of Jesus. Uh, It's God who is the one who moves mountains. It is God who does the impossible. The importance of faith is not how much we have or can conjure up, But the importance of faith is found in the object of our faith. I don't know if you noticed at the head of the bulletin this morning, I noticed it when it was sent to me yesterday, um, uh, that there's a quote from uh, uh, Tim Keller on the very first page there. He says, if you're falling off a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. What's important is what we have faith in. Faith in God's word, faith in God, faith in Jesus. He's the one who moves mountains. He's the one who does the impossible. And the impossible happens. Suddenly they're cleansed. And what an exciting moment that must have been. Wouldn't it be nice to have been a butterfly floating around or something like that and to witness uh, these ten lepers as they're marching down the road. Uh, One's walking along with his walking stick and suddenly realizes that the hand gripping the stick is no longer leprous. Uh, He looks up to announce this to one of his traveling companions and he realizes that his friend's face is no longer white and disfigured. Soon all of them have discovered that they're no uh, longer leprous, that they've been healed. And they're all excited. They're bubbling over. Wow, what an exciting thing. And their excitement puts a new spring in their step. And they all march on to Jerusalem with renewed energy to show themselves to the priests. Just as they've been commanded. All except one. All except one. And Luke showcases the response of the one leper. 
Upon being healed, one of them spins around and goes back to find Jesus while the others press on to show themselves to the priest. And he glorifies God in a loud voice. He falls at Jesus' feet. And more surprising, he's the Samaritan or a Samaritan. There might have been others in the group. He's kind of a theological oddball. He has a deficient understanding of the gospel. In, in modern terms or comparisons, he's the Jehovah's Witness who has some things right about the Bible being God's word, but lots of things wrong about um, um, who Jesus is and what he came to do. But this Samaritan, for all of his faults, gets one thing right. He knows that he's been delivered. He knows that he's been saved. And he is grateful. He is grateful. And Jesus says, where are the nine? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have too much problem finding some excuse for the nine. You can imagine one of the disciples coming up to Jesus and saying, excuse me, Jesus, did, did, did you say where are the nine? Where are the nine? Well, Jesus where did you send them? You told them to go to Jerusalem, and they're going. Uh, see, if you look really carefully down the road, or before they get above the hill there, you can see them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They're all there. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, just like you told them to go. And Jesus, you, you didn't say that if on their way to Jerusalem they should happen to get healed, that they should spin around, come back, fall at your feet, and praise God. Did you? Did you? Now, we need to remember that. These men are busy exercising faith. These men are busy exercising faith. They believe in the word of Jesus. It's no small thing to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a long way off. It's no small thing to go to the priest when you're still leprous. It's no small thing to go to the temple when you're a Samaritan or you're traveling with one. So it's understandable where they are, and part of where they are is good because they're reflecting faith in Jesus. But it's obvious where Jesus wants them to be. He wants them to be gratefully at his feet the way the Samaritan leper is. And he responds to this man with a wondrous blessing and benediction. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, if you understand what's going on here, you also begin to understand the connection between this narrative and Jesus' earlier instruction and parable. This leper is illustrating what it means to have faith increased. First lesson on faith, faith is acting in obedience to God's word. But the second lesson on faith is that an increase in faith comes from an increase of gratitude. An increase of gratitude. Reflect for a moment on the whole context of this passage. Jesus says, beware of causing other people to sin. Beware of stumbling blocks. Jesus says, uh, 
Forgive your neighbor seven times if in the same day, seven times he sins against you and asks for forgiveness, you forgive him. Disciples say, increase our faith. And Jesus rebukes them. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and when it obey you. Why does Jesus rebuke them so harshly? The reason is that the increase of faith comes with the increase of gratitude. And their attitude reflects not a sense of gratitude to God, but simply a sense of duty. As such, they ought to see themselves as unprofitable servants. They're only seeking to do what they have to do. But increase in faith comes when we are motivated by praise and thankfulness to God. And that brings us back to the parable in verses 7 through 10. Will any of one of you, when you has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded to do? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You see the point? I think it's pretty clear. The master doesn't praise the servant because he does what he has to do. But what is praiseworthy? When the servant does above and beyond what is expected out of a heart of gratitude. It's very powerful. It's very powerful. When I was in Wheaton College many years ago, <clears throat> just went to our 50th class reunion, um, uh, I was privileged to be a member of the uh, Wheaton College Men's Glee Club, which was at the time a sort of a world-class men's choral group. It was a, really a terrific, uh, terrific organization to be a part of, and I was very privileged um, to, to uh, and, uh, and unworthy, really, to be a part of it. We sang lots of different songs, all, all, all kinds of music. But one song we sang was a black slave spiritual that you may have heard of before. It's called Set Down Servant. How many of you have heard, ever heard of Set Down Servant? None of you. Great. Well, you're, I've, I'm going to open your eyes to a whole new world here this morning. Okay. It goes like this. Set Down Servant, I can't sit down. Set Down Servant. I can't sit down. Sit down, servant. I can't sit down. My soul's so happy that I can't sit down. That's the basic thing, and it, you, you, uh, you do it in various forms with various harmonies and that kind of thing. I sang that song for years, but I never understood what it meant until I studied Luke 17. Um, and what's going on here? Sit down, servant, and the servant is replying, I can't sit down. Sit down, servant, I can't sit down. Sit down, servant, I can't sit down. My soul is so happy that I can't sit down. That's amazing. That's amazing. The servant is happy. He's joyous in the service of his master, and he can't sit down. 
out of his joy and enthusiasm of service to the master. That slave spiritual is very profound. Uh, I, I might even suggest we include it in the next edition of the Trinity Psalter hymnal or something like that because it's, it's great stuff. For you see, it's exactly the heart of gratitude we ought to have and it is precisely the heart of gratitude expressed by the Samaritan leper. The leper is illustrating what it means to increase faith through gratitude. He exercises faith by being obedient to Jesus' word. He too goes off to show himself to the priest. But his faith is enlarged and increased by his heart of gratitude, which causes him to spin around and go back to the feet of Jesus, praising God for his salvation. And Jesus acknowledges this and blesses him. Uh, your faith go, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Once we understand that faith is increased uh, by an increase in gratitude, this is something we need to continuously keep in mind because it's something that we continuously forget. It's terribly easy uh, uh, to fall into a mechanical and dutiful approach to the Christian life. It's very easy for our faith to become stagnant. And, and when it does, we basically cease to grow and we cease to exhibit much trust uh, in, uh, in, in, in the Lord. You know, we go through the motions of being a Christian and, and, and we want to be a Christian. We're earnest about that. But our lives lack a certain reality. And sometimes we become overwhelmed by what appears to us to be the impossible demands of the Christian life. Outwardly, because we do love the Lord, we obey God's word, we do exercise faith, but inwardly there's very little gratitude or joy. And the Christian life becomes to us a kind of burden. You understand what I'm talking about here? You understand what I'm talking about? Now, because we really are Christians, because God really has changed us, because he has put the spirit in our lives, we're not satisfied with that, are we? We're saddened by it, we struggle with it, but we're not satisfied with it. And the spirit of God doesn't let us alone. Uh, he doesn't let us get away with that mechanical approach to the Christian life. Isn't that wonderful? The spirit of God does not let us just fall into lethargy. So... Faced with the difficulties of the Christian life, we cry out, increase our faith. But then we try to stir up faith by various kinds of activities, maybe the ones that we've been neglecting and that we feel guilty about. Like reading the Bible, you know, we kind of let our Bible reading lapse, and so we commit ourselves to get up earlier or, or to read and study the Bible more. Or, or, or prayer, we realize that our prayer life isn't what it should be, and it never is what it should be. And we long to have a better prayer life. So, again, we try to get up earlier. We try to discipline ourselves uh, to read God's word, to spend more time in prayer. In terms of witness, our testimony, we feel guilty that we're not more public about our love for the Lord and our joy in the salvation that he has given to us. And we resolve to try to, uh, to testify more, to witness more, to share the gospel. Uh, in terms of monetary giving, we, we may admit that we become less generous with our material possessions that we ought to in helping other people 
and maybe less faithful in bringing our tithe uh, to the Lord uh, each week uh, as we worship, uh, worship him, acknowledging that it's from him that all blessings flow. Now, my friend, all those things are good. And we ought to exercise faith, and we ought to do them. But here's the clicker. Here's the counterintuitive notion here. They are not the way to increase faith. They are the way of the nine and not the one. You see, when we just think about it, we would think that an increase in faith would come by simply increasing in faithfulness. By simply doing more, more Bible reading, more prayer, more giving, more witnessing. But Jesus points out and points us to a different direction. One that is counterintuitive, but absolutely essential to understand. An increase in faith comes with an increase of gratitude. Not stirring ourselves up to do more for God, but taking the time to thank him for what he has done for us. And when you do that, that transforms you so that, in fact, you become more faithful. You avoid being a stumbling block to others by recognizing the grace you have been giving, the seriousness of sin, and desiring to live a life uh, uh, of obedience to God that does not injure other people. Uh, you forgive others freely by recognizing that you're a debtor to grace, being grateful for all that grace that God has given to you, and therefore being patient uh, uh, in forgiveness and desiring to forgive and show that grace to others. So the first step in increasing faith is falling at the feet of Jesus and thanking him for what he has done. The second step is to have a whole soul so grateful and happy that you can't sit down um, because you are filled with the joy of service uh, to your master. How could we lay hold of this? Well, let me suggest to you that we have a providential opportunity to put this principle to the test this very week. This is Thanksgiving week. It is a time when we observe a national Thanksgiving holiday patterned after the Old Testament practice of thankful feasting before the Lord. Uh, that's found, by the way, in Deuteronomy 14, uh, 22 to 29. If you all want to write that down somewhere, Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29, you might find it helpful to read it uh, on Thursday uh, before uh, you enjoy your Thanksgiving feast. This is what the pilgrims attempted to emulate in that first Thanksgiving in, in New England. Uh, now, many in our nation, as they approach this Thanksgiving holiday, don't believe in God. Uh, they have turned what should be a feast of gratitude, if they understand the, uh, the, the biblical foundations that the pilgrims had in it, into kind of a feast of gluttony. Thanksgiving Day has become... Turkey Day, and I think a little bit is lost in the translation when you translate it into that. Uh, uh, it's a feast of gluttony further marred by Black Friday's celebration of crass materialism and covetousness. So we, we face some challenges this week in our National Thanksgiving Week. But this morning, I would challenge you and me not to succumb to the cultural understanding of Thanksgiving Week 
But I would encourage each of us this Thanksgiving to take the time to enjoy a special meal. This is biblical. Go back to Deuteronomy 14. To eat it with gratitude in the presence of the Lord. That is biblical. Okay? To share your plenty with others around your table by inviting them to your Thanksgiving feast or by means of giving gifts to others so that those who do not have the means to feast themselves uh, can have it. And to take time, most important, to reflect upon all the reasons you have to be grateful. Especially to reflect on the way that the Lord has delivered you from the leprosy of sin, with all of its corruption, with all of its sorrow, with all of the symbolic judgment, except it's not symbolic judgment, it's real judgment, that you too and we too have been delivered. And to be thankful for that so that our love for the Lord, our faith in him, and our service to him uh, might be increased. I really believe this, and I, I encourage you to put it to the test this week. I really believe that if you do so, if you take time this Thanksgiving week to actually be thankful, especially for the salvation and deliverance he has given to you, your love for him will increase. Your faith uh, in him will grow. And the engine that drives your service to him will be a happy soul full of joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, again, its richness. And we thank you for the way it is so penetrating. uh, That it divides between the soul and the spirit, between the joints and the marrow. That it reveals the thoughts and inclinations of our heart. In order that we might see ourselves as we are. And that we might submit ourselves to your grace. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that has been offered to us through him. Thank you uh, that despite all the difficulties we have and all the sorrows we might wrestle with, that your love for us is unwavering because you've done for us the greatest thing that you could possibly do is sending your son to die that we might live. Help us to meditate upon that, bathe in that, and be transformed uh, by that. And help us to do it this week, this Thanksgiving week, but more important, help us to do it all the days of our life. And when we lose this lesson, help us to circle back around and to realize that increase in faith comes through increase in gratitude. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.